Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, the podcast where we talk about all things assisted reproductive technology. And we mean all things, like seriously, right? <laughs> I mean, um, all things all things interesting. We want the podcast to be, be interesting. Okay. Right? I mean, if it's boring, that's like someone else's podcast. I have rarely talked to anybody who has a boring story. I mean, everybody has something with in this area. They, I mean, I talk to people sometimes who are like, "Oh, I don't think I have anything interesting to say." And you talk to them for a while, and you're like, "Yeah, you have tons of interesting <laughs> stuff to say. Like, you just don't. It feels so normal to you that you don't realize how cool it is for other people." Sure. Um, but so since it's the new year and we're now two weeks in, yeah. uh, we have to do a resolution check. Oh, how are yours going? What are yours? Um, well, I, I, I was never one. Be nicer to your sister. Ooh, ooh. It's, it's okay, I guess you're. I mean, did you did did you write my resolutions for me and just like yes. slip them under my pillow yes, for me? I wrote them for you. <laughs> Need to work harder on them though. Oh, I I mean, I think they. I always do the same kind of thing, and I try not to do the very typical like lose weight. Da da da. I just try to like do a take better care of myself and my body. Um, and considering I have had knee surgery recently, I'm working towards that goal, right? <laughs> so, um, maybe this year will be the year that I can re redo the exercise part of my life again. Always so, fun. I'm, I'm the, working on it. The, I'm just recovering. The, the gym is like a nightmare the first month or so of the year always. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, like I said, I have the lucky, uh, doctor's orders to sit on a couch because mm. I'm recovering from the surgery. Nice. So yeah, for that. What about the you? The couch is not so crowded. Maybe. Um, oh, so this year part, I was like resolved to be better at, um, social media. Cause I'm kind of like, like grandma Ooh. and I are on Facebook. Um, but everyone else has like moved to Instagram and people have been on Twitter for a long time. Uh, my resolution yeah. still stands at zero tweets and me not really understanding like why I would like put on, post on Instagram when it's like repeating Facebook, but I'm still right. working on it. It's a work in progress. Okay. So the, you still have another 50 weeks of the year. So it you, just because you have not achieved your resolution in the first two weeks of the year does not mean that the year is over and you should give up. So, but um, speaking you. of, you know, young people and social media, um, you know, we have yeah. the great honor today of speaking to a much younger guest than we normally have. I mean, because we're all old, I guess. But um, <laughs> we are speaking to someone who was conceived through egg donation and surrogacy. And we are very excited to get to hear her point of view of um, being born in this way and having a family that doesn't necessarily match everyone's around them. And uh, um, Melina is so articulate and brilliant that I kind of feel like an idiot during this interview because she's so, but I I love it. I love it. She's so good. Yeah, no, definitely. I said, let's let's let everybody listen, and they can they can make <laughs> make up their own minds as whether we sound like an idiot or not. And just but no, ignore what I say, phenomenal. but listen to her. She's right, great. <laughs> exactly. All right, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Melina Samard Holm. Thank you for joining us. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> um, and we're so happy to have you here. So we are excited to tell your story, which is a bit of a unique one. We've had a lot of professionals on recently and wanted to kind of get back to the core of like personal stories, which I feel like you very much have, because 
you did not use an egg donor or a sperm donor or a surrogate, but you, um, your birth was the result of those of help by those assisted reproductive technologies, correct? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so just to start, we'll kind of go into that and how it's, you know, may have changed or affected in any way your life. But do you want to start by giving a little bit of background about yourself, kind of where you grew up and what your family structure looked like? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I currently live in Santa Fe, New Mexico with my two wonderful dads and two little brothers. Uh, I'm 23 or 23 years old. So I was born in 1996 through assisted reproduction, um, in vitro fertilization with the help of an egg donor and a surrogate um, in the sperm of one of my fathers. My two little brothers also were born through uh, similar means. And uh, at the time of my birth, it was pretty unheard of for gay couples, especially gay men, to be having children through assisted reproduction. Uh, and so my dads were pioneers in that front. And I was born in California and uh, moved to New Mexico when I was in fourth grade. And uh, it's a good time to move to New Mexico. I, say that <laughs> I know. experience as well. Yeah, it's yeah. the glamour of Hollywood. Melina, in full disclosure, because I don't know how, much, how well you know us, but we grew up in New Mexico as well. You're kidding. No, we grew, yeah. up in, we grew up in Los Alamos. So what? <laughs> so yeah. you know, we would have to drive to Santa Fe just like to go to Walmart. That was oh the city. God. Yeah, it was the big city. Funny. I feel like I have to drive out of Santa Fe to get most things. So right, right. Sad part. Um, oh, I'm so anyway, happy yeah. talking with New Mexicans. I know, right? Hey, land of enchantment, baby. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how early on, like, how young were you when you first? kind of looked around and thought, hey, my family might not be the same as everyone around me? Well, it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment because there are so many different ways in which we observe uh, through our own family, but also through cultural interpretations of what a family is, um, what family should look like. And so I remember one of the first times I thought about it was actually watching, I think it was like Anastasia or something as a child. And it wasn't uh, surrogacy that was a thing that really first uh, alarmed me, or not alarmed me, but uh, something I thought about. It was not having a mom or whatever. Uh, that sort of uh, traditional norm was really overpowering, I think, to young girls. And uh, I mean, that seems to make you like every Disney princess, right? Isn't that the formula that you don't <laughs> yeah, have a mom? Exactly. And I just, I mean, it wasn't that I. I could actually pinpoint exactly what was different, but I think I think young people are inundated with so many different images of what a traditional family is. And it, even without the language to articulate what that is, I think I started noticing the ways in which I was different um, when I was very, very young and then was able to pinpoint exactly what those differences were through my own kind of discoveries on the playground and with friends. Uh, and I even then went further to realize how different I was when I started to kind of understand the contours of stigma and discrimination, especially when it comes to LGBTQ parents. So, yeah. And were you experiencing much of that, especially at a young age? Uh, I think that a lot of the ways that young people experience homophobia is 
um, through microaggressions, as they say, or smaller kind of normative um, kind of uh, overpowering gestures that can make it clear that you're not part of the, the in-group, you know, or you're not the, the typical and what you might call like successful family in, in, in media or according to even your school's kind of given norms. I mean, there was a lot of different layers to that. Um, and I understood those at different times, but I mean, things like Mother's Day or um, as you get older, terms like the word gay or even watching the news and hearing people talk about marriage equality and stuff like that, you slowly get to pick up on the clues. And once you realize then that there's also even a legal element to it, that there's this uh, state-sponsored sort of discrimination, um, you, you begin to understand that your family is despised by people for one, but also considered to be second-class citizens on a legal level. And I mean, I was born in 1996, um, and I was one of the first children growing up with gay parents. And uh, my family was exposed to a lot of media attention because of that. We were in many ways pioneers in our schools and in our cities. And when I moved to New Mexico, uh, that was a huge change for me because I was moving from California, which is perhaps where the most kind of progress was happening on that end, to a place where there weren't that many people that looked like me, for one, as a an Asian American person, and also not people, many people that had families that looked like mine. So, and I think when you're young, you have this desire to fit in in a lot of ways, and that's easily kind of undermined by by something that you, it's, it's so difficult because you love your parents so much and you're so, so grateful for everything they've done, but also it, the schools don't make it easy sometimes. And I'm sure they're doing better to, to feel like you're part of the, the in-group. And that was sometimes difficult for sure. Right. I mean, no matter how you're different, being a child growing up can be so hard that people just look for those and it can be cruel. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's different for, I think, what like the community, the queer spawn community, as I call it, or the collage community. Collage is an organization that um, seeks to empower children of queer parents. But um, because there's not just the, the typical bullying, there's also this state sanctioned sort of discrimination yeah. that you you live with. And, and that's something that manifests structurally when queer families don't get access to the same kind of resources too. For sure. And presumably your dads were not married when you were born yeah. because they couldn't be. Mm -hmm. They just recently got married actually. Oh, <laughs> congratulations. Yes. Which is kind of fun that you got to be in the wedding. Well, probably, they actually right? haven't had their wedding yet. Oh, they didn't have because okay. at their age, they're like, there's so much planning involved and we don't really want to go through it. But it was always my dream to be the flower girl. And oh, so that's, I guess, God, the I silver it. lining <laughs> of, uh, of a couple made to wait to have their marriage. Yeah. Oh, well, that's sweet. We'll, we'll look for the pictures of you as a flower girl at 20, 23 or yeah. 24, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, how did your dads first talk to you about um, egg donation, surrogacy? Did they start young or how did those conversations go with you? Well, they were completely transparent whenever I had any questions uh, about the process of my birth. And I, and I always grew up being very grateful 
knowing that there were, there was a team of people that helped to create me. I mean, um, we were very, I'm very fortunate. Uh, my whole family is to have had the help of people who were willing to cut against what a large number of people were saying was, which was that gay people shouldn't have children. And I think uh, at that time, my dads were kind of pulling different pieces together with friends and doctors. And it was really a miracle that I was born. Um, and so I've always known that there were other elements. I mean, as soon as you walk into sex ed the first time, you know that you can't. <laughs> something, There's another way. Yeah, there has yeah. to be something else, you know. But uh, were, were you raising your hand and saying anything or did you no, just kind of keep quiet? I, I think I knew before in my first sex ed class. I, uh, I mean, even without like the biological knowledge, you know that something's different. And so from there, and you kind of ask questions. And my parents were always very forthcoming with, with what was needed to, um, for me to understand my situation. And it wasn't that I, I, I never felt like that aspect of my family was something that I needed to uncover or was something bizarre. It was always, my parents treated it like a, a normal topic of conversation. And I think that was really helpful for me. So on a total logistics front, because this is like a big thing right now, is your egg donor, do you, was it known, unknown? Do you know who your egg donor is? So at the time of my birth, there weren't agencies that were willing to work with my parents as a gay couple. Um, that's why my dad became involved with Growing Generations or started Growing Generations. Uh, he So the, the egg donor that was involved um, and was very generous um, was familiar with my dad at the time and um, is still anonymous to me. And uh, in large part, I haven't, I, there's been no, nothing missing from my life. So I haven't felt the need to, to reach out to, to her, though I'm very deeply grateful for, for her help in creating my family. Yeah. I mean, that's a really big point because a lot of families who are going through egg donation or surrogacy, especially egg donation when it's unknown or anonymous, really worry about how that it might affect you, the child can see from that donation and how you might feel about it in the future. And I, I know we're seeing more of these organizations um, of donor conceived children who do feel maybe some negative thoughts, like they feel that a piece is missing, but it sounds like that that was never how it's felt to you. Yeah, that's never how it's felt for me. My parents are my parents in every sense. And I think um, I think that if a relationship between somebody and their egg donor were to occur, it's often, it should be out of a place of like feeling like your life is full and beautiful as it is. And the only reason why you would reach out is because that person might add something, not out of a need or a deficit for um, someone to fill a like a maternal or paternal role. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I, my whole life, I have been overwhelmed by the love that I've received by my parents. I mean, I mean, my parents who read to me every night, drove me to school every morning, taught me how to swim. These, like, I, I know that these are my parents in every sense. And I think I would be remiss to think I needed anything else. I'm so, so fortunate to have the two loving dads I have. That's really great to hear. 
along those lines, we also hear the criticism, especially from kind of a more conservative standpoint of like a child needs a father and a mother on kind of that, that area where you're watching Disney movies or seeing mothers. Did you have other people who kind of filled a role of like a maternal um, guidance or did you ever feel like you needed that or were missing it? Not at all. I think it's pretty obsolete, the idea that only a woman can fulfill what has been classically understood as a Only women can be nurturing. Exactly. I think that that's, and I mean, the same with that men can't be, or that women can't be, you know, a a source of like showing bravery or whatever it is, you know, that is typically ascribed to men. I mean, it's, uh, it cuts both, both ways. And I think that we're starting to to through this community, but also more untraditional family show that what is chopped up to be a gender role is often very wrong and is very much a construct. And I mean, I wasn't short of female role models in my life at all. I mean, uh, my dad's are friends with many women. I have many women in my life, but it, it hasn't been like I needed their guidance as opposed to my parents to, to, you know, carve out a role for me as a woman. I mean, it was, it was never an issue for me. And, um, my parents were very much able to, to be nurturing and caring. So, but these Disney movies really get it wrong (laughs) a lot of the times. And it's, it's upsetting because even if I don't feel that way, when you're young being inundated with these images, you're meant to feel that way, even if there's no reason to sometimes. Right. Right, because those those Disney movies are intended to evoke exactly. that response. Exactly. <laughs> and they're so binormative and they're so gender constructive. I mean, it's really kind of horrific. So the classic awkward moment for any parent, um, like when your uh, menstrual cycle started, how did, how did that go? Like, hey. Yeah, so my dad works in reproductive technologies. He knows far more about what's <laughs> happening, actually, to me than most parents yes. do generally. Right. And... I mean, I, I, why do I have a feeling this is gonna be very similar to my child's story coming up here? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like if anything, he was too prepared and I don't want oh, that's hilarious. him to be that prepared. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. It's just the idea that, that certain things can only be discussed with other women mm. for me has always been wrong. I mean, that's something I learned very quickly. My parents have talked me through things that many people would presume were only something to be talked with a mo- with a mother but it's it's just all ties back to this idea that that the sexes are meant for certain things and that's just not true Jen, did you want to share your story and embarrass your daughter? Is oh, that- my goodness. So I, my poor thing, I don't oh, think perfect. she listens right now. So hopefully <laughs> she won't listen. I don't know. <laughs> so because I spend all day asking people like when their cycle starts, yeah. right? You know, that's just part of my life every day. Like she hears me kind of work from my home office about three quarters of the time. And so she goes, so she comes in one day and she just shrugs and she's like, hey, my period started. And she just walks off. And I was like, oh. Oh, okay. That that was it, right? You know, <laughs> it wasn't even a thing for her because she was so used to it. Just she, she hears it all day, so it really didn't matter whether I was her mother or her father, or you know, it, just because these were normal words for her and things that we had talked about so much that it just wasn't an event to her. Yeah, <laughs> that's so funny. 
So growing up in New Mexico, having two dads, how did you deal with it when there might have been um, incidents of homophobia or negativity about your family? It was certainly challenging at time. And I think a lot of the fears I felt were kind of derived from this internal kind of self-consciousness. Um, I never... There, it was rare that I experienced abject homophobia in, in New Mexico. It was, again, more of the little things that made me feel like my family wouldn't be completely welcome. I mean, I went to a school with around 20 kids in a class. And when I first got there, someone asked me what my mom did the first day. Oh. And I just was frozen still. And I and I, and I lied. I, I completely oh. lied the first time because I was just so scared. I was oh, wow. in fifth grade. And... I had heard already that day someone used the word gay in a derogatory way. Oh, and wow. I had no idea what to expect. And I ended up kind of creating a web of lies for a long time. Oh. And it was the most ashamed I've ever felt oh, because you, you have my, wow. my dads who fought so, so hard to have me. For 10 years, they fought to have me at a time when it was deemed impossible by so many. And, and here I was kind of pushing them back into the closet. Um, I even, I, I told my classmates once that one of my dads was my uncle and I, I feel now so deeply ashamed for, for acting that way. But, and I, and I try not to blame myself too heavily yeah. because of course there, there are stigmas. You're a child and, and, and yeah. But it, it, it hurts so much to feel sometimes torn between them. And I think that many youths are, are lucky to have more community now um, and I know Collage, that organization, is it seeks to create community for people that feel lonely and alienated by um, circumstances like that. But it 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 made me feel like I was betraying the people that loved and fought for me the most, and and that was horrible. And eventually, I did obviously like come out, in other words, to my family. I'm mean, not to my family, to to my class, and. I ended up being involved in, in, in GSAs and, and being the co-president later. And, and it obviously shifted, but that fear that young people have, which derives from, you know, the general stigmas that people can perceive through whatever, whatever media or cultural output um, is really strong. And, and uh, being in a place that's new is, is very difficult. Mm -hmm. When you, when you came out, and I'm using that word because you used it, not because that's the right word, <laughs> yeah. but when you came out to people about, you know, the, the truth of, of your upbringing, your life, your family structure, how, how was it received? I think that a lot of the times people harness prejudice because they don't have experience with the people that they, 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 they hold biases against. And I think almost immediately once I started telling people uh, there was a huge cultural shift in the class. People stopped using the word gay willy-nilly and they wow. they were more thoughtful about it. I think it took putting a face to a community to kind of humanize it and recognize that even the smallest of things can make a big difference. And uh, it was well-received and I realized that a lot of my fears were internal. Um, but I was also lucky again to be in, in Santa Fe, a place that is accepting. There are people I know with queer parents that cannot talk about their family because there's threat of violence or that there's a threat of serious, serious isolation. Um, so I, I was very fortunate in, in the 
the kind of struggles I had were small in comparison to a lot of what the collage community experiences in the queer community. That's great. And we'll link to collage when we post the post this episode. So oh, those great. who are interested can, can be able to follow up on that. When you were going through that experience of, you know, making up a mother, um, did you ever talk to your dads about it? Or you just felt like you couldn't, you didn't want to tell them what, what was happening? I, it's, I honestly, there are so many gaps in my memory from that time because I was so scared and afraid and ashamed. And, um, I, I don't think I, I, I've told them in now and, and they know that I've, that I've had this experience, but at the time, I think it was too hard to, to look at the person who the people that gave you everything and, and tell them that, that you've done that. I would never, I, I, I don't know if I could have been at that courageous to not only tell them, but to, um, I think it would have taken more courage to tell them than to tell the class because of how horrible I felt about what I did. Hmm. When it came to those events, like a Mother's Day event or something, would you tell them about those or did they have any kind of support around those kind of events? You know, most of the Mother Day, Mother's Day events were when I was in LA because I was younger. And so there weren't, um, uh, eventually the, the true, the true nature of my family did come up and, um, my grandmother oftentimes would come to Mother's Day events instead of um, a mother. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, but again, like when I was younger, I think having the presence of a Mother's Day without, without any, any kind of you know, dialogue about the fact that maybe some families don't have mothers in schools kind of to me suggested that that I was supposed to have a mother or that, that to not have a mother was somehow wrong. And so, yeah. um, that was really like a, a t- actually something that my dad and my, um, both my parents fought to correct in my school in good for uh, them. LA. Okay, good. Yeah. And that's why I was kind of curious that they did anything or had someone show up. That's good to hear. Um, interestingly, for my own children, I often see these invites around those days and they tend to now be like a special person breakfast, which I think is really nice mm-hmm. that it can be whatever yeah. person you might want to bring. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, we dealt with a lot of like with the military community, I'd be in places like, it'd be like donuts for dad with dads and like, Katie's dad would be deployed. And so then you have all these, like there's so many oh, God. father, daughter that can make yeah. people feel Chris, yeah, yeah. Father, daughter dances, all yeah. these things, you know, like so many opportunities to make people feel not accepted with their own personal family. Did structure. you growing up kind of find your crowd and did you find that you had any similar support or friends? Like, did you have, did you know anyone else that had an alternative family or a different structure than kind of the quote traditional family? Mm-hmm. So in the places I lived, there were a few people with similar family structures, but uh, again, the collage community or going to, I don't know if you've heard of family equality. Um, these organizations were instrumental in introducing me to people that looked like me and had families like me, a place where I could be, unapologetically myself there is an event every year in Provincetown Massachusetts where queer families come together and I started coming when I was 
you know, like two years old, a baby. And I think having exposure to that was so important to recognizing that this community stretches beyond me and knowing that, that all of these kind of things I had harbored, these mistakes I'd made and these fears and kind of that had created a lot of shame in myself, um, were shared by other people. And that a lot of these broken things, like uh, what I consider broken parts of my past were something that people had also experienced. And I felt like I could be in a place where all of those things could be out on display without shame. And so um, having access to those communities was really important to me. That sounds great. How much younger are your brothers? And do you feel like things are getting easier? I, do they have an easier path than you? It, it's hard to say if things are getting easier because I think it can be so localized and so dependent on where you are. I mean, again, people in Massachusetts have a very different experience of people in Kentucky. And uh, that's something that I always keep in, 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 in my back of my mind when I think about things getting better, because it does seem that way for sure. I mean, you have legal advance, advancements. My brothers aren't nearly as uh, involved in the community, the queer spawn community as I am, because I don't think they've felt the need to be necessarily, although they may join later on. Uh, and I, I think that they, they're, they were born in 1998 and then 2002. And so even in the span of, you know, five, six years, I feel like it's made a demonstrable difference for children growing up with queer parents. That's great. And are you guys close? Yes. You yes. and your brothers? Uh-huh. I love them <laughs> very much. We're all very different, but uh, we, we, we talk a lot and we love each other very dearly. Aww. So one element that comes in sometimes is, you know, when it's two dads and also, I mean, you can be with, you know, a man and a woman, if you use a donor, is that one parent may be genetically related to the child and one not. Did you, did your parents disclose that to you or was it obvious? And did that ever make any difference in your life? It was never obvious to me. Uh, and I don't think it's obvious to anyone actually, both all my my brothers and I, we are all part Korean and part Caucasian, um, which is the the racial makeup of my father's as well. So uh, it's deliberately made to be so that people can immediately tell who is mm-hmm. the, the sperm donor involved. But uh, for me, I didn't realize until recently uh, who the the sperm donor was, uh, and it, it's never mattered to me in my whole life. Um, I. So you, you didn't even ask? No, I didn't ask. When you were younger. It, it only came up because I, I had found out um, through my parents the identity of my egg donor and so because they had known her. And so I, through that, was able to discern. But that's the only way. And it never really was a – it was never something that I cared about because um, that makes no difference to me. And I think that it shouldn't. So – even along those, oh god. Well, and along those, I, I, oh, sorry, I won't give you. But um, along no, okay. those lines. So one of the questions with an anonymous donor is this issue about when you go to the doctor and you're filling out these like long questionnaires about your history or your family's medical history. How do you know that information, or how do you approach that? <laughs> That's a funny question. That's a good good question because I usually just check no to everything. <laughs> 
Let's assume everyone's totally healthy. I'm sure that might be an issue of my kind of haphazard attitude in the doctor's office. I am my my parents. uh, One of my dads is a doctor, (laughs) and uh, I think they care deeply about making sure medical history and all of those factors that might be relevant are known. Um, They would never withhold information. that might be relevant to a, a health issue. I'm lucky to be very healthy. Um, I, I know that a lot of the times you get genetic or medical history um, when you have an egg donor or a sperm donor. Um, in the cases where you don't, uh, that uh, I think is becoming more rare, but I'm not really sure of the science um, with that. Uh, and I think uh, my personal understanding of it isn't as important as uh, my parents knowing when it might be relevant. Yeah. So to talk, oh, go ahead. You, you go, go. So, sorry, I'm going to go back go to ahead. my, no, no, me, let me, 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 me. <laughs> so, no. So I, I hate to harp back to like, you know, donor and surrogate and things like that. But some of this comes from a perspective of like, I talk to surrogates all the time and what they're interested in is potentially having a relationship or knowing about the child that they carried after the birth. Do you know who you're, your surrogate was? Are you guys still in contact with your surrogate? And same with your brothers, quite honestly, because surrogacy changed over even in that that short span of time. It really evolved very quickly. I have nothing but deep, the deepest gratitude for my surrogate and egg donor. I don't have a relationship with either. Uh, and there's no indication that that's going to change, I think. Um, and But I, it's not that I wouldn't be open to that. It's I just think that it's not, if it didn't, occur it would not be out of a place of need or yeah well and i don't think um, surrogates want to mother you no and that's what never that that never comes from that they're just always they have curiosity usually is what it is yeah and i think that um if like my surrogate reached out to me i'd be really open to having a relationship i just think it becomes difficult when it hinges on this sort of supernatural biological need and i don't think that that exists you know that that the biological connection makes something that's like spiritual or, you know, perennial between individuals. So if you don't mind talking about your dad, uh, I thought it was really funny when you made a comment earlier about, you know, not being in one of the successful families or, you know, the in families because your dads are incredibly successful and prominent. I mean, so full disclosure for me as an art attorney, you know, I consider one of your dads, Will Palm, um, you know, kind of a, a beacon of light and guidance that he has been yes. in this area and specialized and such so knowledgeable and helpful to the rest of us for so many years. Um, how did that, do you mind talking about your dads and what they do and how that may have affected your, your upbringing yeah. and who you are? And when I said that, like, I, I felt, I didn't mean like not successful yeah. and, you know, I meant that, it, you know, when there is homophobia, like yeah. queer families are meant yeah. to feel like they're not a, a good family. But sure. of course my dads are in every, they're my heroes. And I mean, my dad, Will Holm, as you spoke about, he was a pioneer, not only in reproductive technologies, but for the gay community. And really stepped up to the plate when nobody else would. Uh, I think so much about what it would have taken to have the bravery that my parents did to keep pushing through the rejections, to keep pushing through their friends, even telling them that this wasn't a good idea, that they were not meant to be parents. They created 
created a family that would allow so many more parents to, to exist. As, and I think so many people are told that they're not fit to be parents. So many people are told that they could never imagine participating in perhaps one of the most important parts of being a human, which is to have a family. Not everyone needs to have a family, but for those who do, to not be able to, to be bereft of that right is is a really a huge tragedy. And my parents opened the door for people's dreams to be realized. And I I harness the most love and and awe for my parents for doing that. I really, I really think that that what they did was so, so groundbreaking. Um, and my other dad, he's a, he's a doctor and he saves lives every single shabby. day. <laughs> right. I know, he, he saves lives every single day and he has the biggest heart of anyone I know. And together they just, I could not be more to have the most abiding gratitude for the parents I have because they have allowed me to have every opportunity I could wish for so that hopefully I can help people too one day. And on that note, what do you see for your future? Do you see what you went through affecting kind of what you do either professionally or on the side in advocating for families? Absolutely. I I think being born into a community that has cared so much for justice and pushing progress forward has informed so much of who I am. I grew up with an equality sign on my, on my wall and um, seeking out that sort of that sort of protection of dignity and is, is what I aim to do in a lot of different ways. I'm going to law school next year. Congratulations. I'm, Woo! Thank you. Being a lawyer. Nice. I, I'm lucky to have sat on the collage board and continue to work with Family Quality on their board. Um, so to, to continue advocating for families like mine, but also I think what I learned from my parents is is resistance and and a, and a love of justice, and I hope to bring that to everything I do. Um, That's great. So you'll probably do like M and A and acquisitions and mergers as an attorney. <laughs> God forbid, no. I, uh, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> Hold me to it. If if I do end up doing oh, that, God. you can pull up that clip. <laughs> We're gonna play this for you. Do mm-hmm. you do you see yourself kind of fighting for justice? Do you see yourself kind of following um, doing art law, assisted reproductive technology law? What do you what do you see for yourself? Uh, I'm not sure the specific path it'll take yet. I've been involved in criminal justice work before and immigration reform. Uh, and I, a lot of my heart lies there as well. I think it's a really important political moment for people to be advocating on that front. But also, I think it's a really important to, to continue to push the bounds of family protections. Just recently, Trump issued an order that would jeopardize whether or not queer families can adopt. Um, and so there's still a front on every single legal angle. And so I have lots of things to choose from. Right, for sure. And um, along those lines, what do you, aside from that, what do you kind of see currently as like the cracks in the law and society affecting your family and family families like yours right now? That's a really great question. There are all always a lot of cracks, I think, um, in the law protecting my family as long as there are cultural forms of discrimination uh, more uh, that exist. I think that 
that as long as a large body of our society uh, is or holds kind of bigoted views towards our family, there's always going to be avenues for legal discrimination, especially against uh, certain communities of the LGBTQ community, whether that be the trans community or queer people of color. I, I think that there are so many different avenues where legal discrimination takes place, uh, not only on the family front, but in workplaces, schools, um, and more. I, I think all of the gains that we have made in the past decades are at risk because they can be reversed with a single decision. Uh, so we need to be wary that uh, and never complacent about what it means for our community to, to fully reach equality. Yeah. If you could speak to a young person in a similar position as kind of where you were growing up, who might be feeling like they're not sure their place in the world or society, what would your, what would your advice or words of comfort be to that person? Something my dad actually told me a lot when I was growing up was accept others, but always accept yourself. And uh, that's something that I grappled with when I was growing up. But I think so often we're encouraged to believe certain things or do certain things without fully thinking about the ways that we haven't come to fully accept ourselves and love ourselves. And that's the first step for any of the change that we wish to see, making sure that we we are proud of who we are and uh, willing to totally reject a lot of the things that we have been meant, made to feel about ourselves in the past. Im- I don't know. Im- important words for any <laughs> of it. us. Like, Love it. Yeah. And um, sorry, Jen, I feel like I'm like dominant. I'm like, so no, you're questions. great. Um, and I, I feel like so, you know, intended parents and donors and surrogates, you know, there is a lot of pressure about, you know, what are you doing? And so many questions. Um, if you could speak, like, I feel like so many want to know, like, how, how will this child be? Will they be okay? Um, if you could say generally to those future intended parents, those donors, those surrogates, um, I mean, one, are you okay? Which I feel like the answer is clear, but what, what would you, what would you say to them? Like, Hey, this is your future 23 years from now. Your child is like beautiful and brilliant. And what does she have to say? (laughs) Well, I hope I've shown uh, through this interview, but also in other things that I, as well as the millions of other people now growing up, uh, in, in families like mine are testimony to the fact that we're okay. And that, um, there's not one single way to raise a family. Um, the only thing that that really is demanded for the success of a family is a love and care, which I'm sure if people are considering surrogacy, there is that in, in surplus because it, it takes a lot to do. And, and the deliberation required, the work required is indicative of that love. I, I think that that the kids are not only all right, they're extraordinary in a lot of ways and tuned into the issues that our world needs to address. Uh, we're at a point where, where this world needs more than ever people who think compassionately and with care. And I know that this community is, 
has been a paragon of that. Yeah, I believe it. Jen, any other pressing questions? I'm so no, I'm so overwhelmed by her. Like the end there, that is so beautiful. It's just like, yeah, no, you are the the charge of making the difference in the world and seeing not. I, I, I'm going to say this very poorly because you said it so eloquently, <laughs> you know, that, that you are the embodiment of what everybody needs to see of how perfect things are. You know, that it is every family is, is all right and, and the kids are okay and they're more than okay as long as they're loved. Absolutely. Melina, thank you for sharing with us. Thank you all so much for having me. Thanks again to Melina for being so, so open, so honest for sharing so much of her life and really sharing such a really sharp and smart perspective. We, I'm just overawed. I was gonna say I'm overawed by her poise, by her intelligence. Like she's just an incredible person. Um, I I wish I sounded like that in my twenties or even in my forties. I wish I sounded right. I'm like, Oh, I I, like, as I was listening, I'm like, can I take like speaking tips from somehow? (laughs) I need to learn something from this. (laughs) Oh no, she was incredible. And we are as always appreciative of, of her time and that she was willing to come talk to us. Um, as always, if you guys want to talk to us as well, uh, you can call our hotline at 303-997-1903. And I know I have not harped on it for a while, but you could leave us a review on iTunes as well. You know, we, 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 we like always to always appreciate like the feedback. Thank you. Exactly. Any feedback at all is awesome. You know, cause anything that you're like, Ooh, you should improve this. It, that helps us grow. And if you're like, mm-hmm. we love you, it just makes us happy. So <laughs> either way is great. Um, but, but people that make us happy, of course, are the people that make us sound incredible. Big thank you as always to Chris at Work at Bird Studios, to Amanda on our team, to Ashley on our team, to Tyler, who it was my resolution to not forget and I forgot last <laughs> week. So double thank you to Tyler. And uh, even though Lexi is not with us, her residual, I mean, for her maternity leave, her, her residual need for thanks goes on. So thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.